Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. This morning we come to one of uh, the most significant, at least people, what people would say is one of the most significant passages in all of Matthew's gospel. Some people would say it is the pinnacle of the entire gospel. It certainly is one of the most significant passages when it relates to the issue of the church. It provides some helpful clarity on an important topic, that is to say the church, because while the concept of church is fairly familiar to most people, the actual definition of it can be a little clouded and uh, understanding of its purpose even more so. The word itself has uh, sort of a definitive history, the word church, that is. Uh, Some of you may know that it translates the Greek word ekklesia, but the word itself, church, comes from a different sort of uh, Greek uh, uh, heritage. It comes from the combination of two words, kyria and kon, uh, combined for kyriakon, which means Lord's house. Kyriakon in the um, early church became kirka, which then became kirka, and then by the time English language form, kirka became church. So in its etymology, it basically means the Lord's house. But we know, obviously, that the word is used in much more varied ways today. It might refer to a congregation of people meeting at a particular location. It might refer to an entire mass of people across the entire globe who identify with Christ. It might refer to a building, obviously, or any group of people associated with that building. It could refer to a denomination, a group of people who align around a common profession or or doctrinal statement or an ecclesiological authority over them. And so we have, of course, uh, all kinds of various denominations. There is obviously the Catholic Church and then the Protestant Church. And within the Protestant Church, you have Anglicans and Methodist Church and Baptist Church and Presbyterian Church and Nazarene Church and all kinds of churches. And even apart from that, people speak of churches according to style. You have traditional churches church or contemporary church or fundamentalist church or progressive church or seeker church or emergent church or in more uh, contemporary terms, woke church. So you have all these sort of styles of churches with all these ideologies that are swirling around them. And of course, with all of that going on, it's sometimes helpful to just come back to a basic idea, an original idea of what a church is, what it's meant to be. And today we come to a passage that should help significantly in clarifying that and and thinking more accurately and speaking more accurately about the church. One of the reasons for that is because what we come to today comes straight from the lips of Jesus. It's one of Only two places he ever actually discusses the church. The word only occurs on the lips of Christ twice in the Bible. And this is the first of those two places. 
So we might say this is the core, this is the fundamental idea of a church in Jesus' mind. And this is helpful, again, because I believe there is increasing confusion. People apply the label of church to all kinds of things that increasingly have little to do with what Jesus originally had in mind when He spoke about the church. They, they apply the term church to all kinds of groups that have wildly divergent beliefs and theologies and ideologies. In some case, cases, they're little more than social or political movements with some thin veil of Christian identity. I remember going to a conference here in Atlanta years ago and listening to a debate on stage among a, a number of pastors of African American churches, and, and they were debating certain things about the black church and they would the black church this and the black church that and it went on for quite some time and I remember some guy on the on the stage just at one point saying could we just like stop for a minute and and stop talking about the black church and just talk about the church which I thought was a very very insightful clarifying moment there because once you start adding all these labels all these sort of subgroups you you can get more and more distant from what the whole idea is. And it's not anything particular with the African-American church. It could be any church, any label that you've put on that. You begin to think about all these groups uh, within the church and outside of our boundaries, they can create all kinds of negative connotations, have negative experiences or negative headlines that people might associate with the church, none of which actually have anything to do with what Jesus originally thought of as the church. Or on the other hand, you might associate with some group of people who've labeled themselves as a church, but they have already begun to morph into something other than the church in the sense that Jesus had in mind. So with all that sort of confusion out there, it it might be helpful for us to hear again from Jesus what he thought of when he first use the word church. And to do that, we find ourselves here in Matthew 16 and verses 13 through through 19. And to get us started, I want to just read this familiar passage for us this morning. Verse 13, we can pick it up and it says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This passage uh, drives home for us uh, some truths about what the church is really about, what Jesus really thought about the church. As I said, he only mentions the word church twice in all of his teachings. This is the first one. And, and when he does talk about the church, he never talks about buildings and he never talks about programs. 
and he never talks about social issues, and he never talks about all the things that seem to dominate the focus and attention and writing and literature of so many people who talk about the church today. He talks about some very different things, some more fundamental things. And if it's not obvious to you already, as we've read through these verses, I believe it will become obvious that Jesus has a much more distinct and narrow idea about the church than what most people might think when they think about the church. And all the, we get all that by, by uh, hearing Jesus' declaration, by understanding His declaration that He will build His church. And from this passage, we get a pretty clear understanding of the kind of church that He wants to build, the kind of church He wants to build. It's, it's going to be marked by four distinct characteristics, four distinct traits here. The first one, we might say, in verses 13 through 16 is he wants to build a church that brings clarity to who he is. He wants to build a church that brings clarity to who he is. In fact, the whole discussion here is centered around this one dominant question from verse 16. Who do you say that I am? That's what it's really all about. That's the dominant question that launches this whole discussion, the dominant question that ought to occupy every church's attention. Who is Jesus? Now, before we really begin to look at the answers to that, we probably should sort of understand why he's even having this discussion to begin with. We're told that he is in Caesarea Philippi when all of this uh, discussion arises, which was outside of Israel's territory, and as we've seen in in the, the past couple of weeks, Jesus was doing this. He was moving outside of Israel's territory increasingly because not only the pressures of the crowds and the threat of the leaders of Israel, but also just for personal rest and, and, uh, and uh, personal recuperation. Here he is now in Caesarea Philippi. This is as far outside of Israel's territory as he ever traveled, at least that we're aware of. He's 25 miles north of any of the most northern boundaries of Israel in a completely Gentile territory, and he's gone up here alone, away from all the Jews, near the end of his ministry. And as we've said in weeks past, part of the reason for this was the increasing hostility that was coming against him. It manifested itself from the religious leaders. It manifested itself from the political leaders, Herod and others who were showing an interest in possibly wanting to arrest Jesus. But even that, beyond that, there was, there was dissatisfaction with the crowds. As we saw, he fed at one point 5,000 people, plus uh, 5,000 men and plus the women and children that were with them. And another occasion, he fed 4,000 with women and children alongside of them. So thousands and thousands of people who were, who were witness and, and participants in one of these miracles. And yet John tells us that even after all of that, as Jesus started to teach the people, he had fed them, and when he turned to start teaching them, he had to say some hard things to them. And when he said hard things to them, John says that many of them turned back and were following him no more. So now as he, as he goes up to Caesarea Philippi, there would, have been, there would have been a sort of a dour mood over his disciples particularly. 
as they began to wonder why this thing is unfolding, or they might say unraveling, the way that it is. It's not following their expectations. They're grappling in their own hearts with disappointment. They're probably wondering about the future, about how it's all going to go. So Jesus raises a question about the future, about what He's going to do, about how He's going to build His church. And so He does that, first of all, by, by asking them a question about what everyone's saying. What are they all saying about me? What do the people think about me? And the disciples would have known this because he had sent them out, you remember. He sent them out into all the villages, two by two, back in Matthew chapter 9, to preach the gospel. And they went all over Israel, all over Galilee. And so they got firsthand street knowledge of what people were saying about Jesus. And, And so they're able to say with confidence, well, there's all kinds of opinions about you out there. Some people say that you're John the Baptist. We know uh, for sure that Herod was saying that. Matthew reports it to us that, that he, he, Herod thought that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead because Herod had killed John the Baptist and maybe out of a guilty conscience he was fearful that John has now risen from the dead and now working all these miracles was an indication that he was coming back for judgment against Herod. I don't, I don't know what all of his motivations were but that was one of the ideas. Some people said there was, he was Elijah That would have been a common expectation that Elijah or someone like Elijah would be uh, uh, raised up before the coming of the Messianic King. Other people thought that he was Jeremiah, which doesn't necessarily arise as a biblical prophecy, but it it gained traction as uh, an old wives' tale or an apocalyptic tale in the ancient literature. Uh, It had been speculated that before the destruction of the first temple, that Jeremiah had taken some of the key instruments uh, from the altar and gone to Mount Nebo and buried them somewhere in Mount Nebo in a hidden place. And that whenever the new temple was rebuilt, that Jeremiah would come back and he would go and show the people where all this stuff was buried and would bring back and restore the altar in the new temple. So some people thought maybe that's what's going on or, or maybe he's one of the other prophets. All these various ideas and speculation that arose out of the current cultural climate and political expectations of the people. All this was there and Jesus listened patiently just like always. He understood that there were competing, multiple, uh, insufficient speculations about who he was, just like there is today. There are lots of people who have all kinds of ideas about Jesus. There are those who give their whole life to studying Jesus, even if they're not Christians. They look at him as an important historical figure, an important philosopher, someone who laid out a a philosophy, a moral code of life, and so they want to study it in that sense, or they want to study it from the political influence of Jesus and how that all moved across the ancient world and the Roman Empire to, to create certain influences and forces that shape Western culture. He clearly is an important historical figure. We date our entire calendar from his birth. And so there's lots of recognition uh, 
uh, among the world and among thinkers that Jesus was someone significant, someone important, maybe someone great. There's always been plenty of opinions about him. But Jesus isn't really interested primarily in those. He only raises them for the sake of clarity and contrast because after they lay all those out, he has a particular question for the disciples. Who do you say that I am? That's really the important question. How does your idea about me differ from everyone else's idea about me? How do you think differently, speak differently than all these other people? Well, Peter responds with this basic answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's, that's his assessment. That's the assessment of the apostles. That is their great confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, which is really two statements. It's a statement about his function and a statement about his nature. In terms of function, he is the Christ, or, or we would say the Messiah. Both, both those words mean the same thing. He is the, the one who is chosen by God to be the deliverer. That is bound up with an entire history of promises from the Old Testament that all have to do with an expected deliverer who would come to Israel, be born in Israel. And he would deliver Israel not only from her enemies, but he would, in fact, deliver the entire world from its corruption. The Bible speaks about the Messiah coming and righteousness covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. So this was not just a a local political phenomenon. This was a global phenomenon. The Messiah was going to come, and he was going to restore things. He was going to deliver people from the corruption of this world. He was going to restore things back to the way they were meant to be in the Garden of Eden. He was going to do all of that. So, So that's his functional part. But then there is the other part, his nature. You're not only the deliverer, but you are the son of God. That is, that is to say you are divine nature in human flesh. Meaning that he has a, a unique and eternal relationship to God unlike any other man who's ever lived. To call him the son of God means that he shares God's nature. That, that is inherent in the Hebrew idea of being the son of somebody. That you share characteristics with that person. And in this case, you share the nature and the essence of God. You are divine like God. That's what he's saying. And, and to call God his father is to speak of a kind of relationship of warmth That's unlike anyone else. I mean, he has a relationship to God that is unique. All those things are bound up in that statement. So so when he says that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, he's saying that you are a man, but you're more than a man. You're worthy of everything that God is worthy of. You're worthy of our worship. You're worthy of our adoration. You're worthy of our love. You're worthy of our unreserved obedience. You're worthy of all that stuff. 
This, of course, wasn't a leap suddenly or a wild guess for Peter. He had been thinking about this for a long time. The very first time he met Jesus, he recognized something unique. You remember? He was walking on the sea of swords of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus was. He saw Peter. Uh, he told Peter to launch out his boat, cast his net, and they couldn't pull in the fish. And at that point, Peter falls on the deck of his boat and cries out, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He knew immediately from the first day he met Jesus, this is not an ordinary man. And that would be confirmed as he walked with Jesus for the next two years and he saw miracle after miracle performed. He saw entire towns where disease was eradicated. They would, he would, Jesus would arrive in a town and people would start to bring their sick and their, their infirmed and they would lay them at Jesus' feet and it would go on all day long, hour after hour, until every person in the village, every person in the community was healed. And he, would, he was eradicating disease and illness from entire villages and Peter watched that day after day after day. He watched Jesus take a few loaves and feed thousands of people. He watched Jesus walk on the water and calm the seas. He watched him bring people back from the dead. He saw it. So he knew this was not like any other man. Not only that, but he heard the words of Christ, words that the crowds were saying are not like anybody else. He speaks like someone we've never heard. He speaks with authority unlike anyone we'd ever heard, the crowds were saying. Peter felt that. He heard that. In fact, when everyone else started to abandon and Jesus turned to Peter and asked him, do you want to go too? Peter said, where, where would I go? You have the words of eternal life. Your words are not like any other words I've ever heard from any other person. Your words are unique. Your words are powerful. Your words deliver truth and hope. They deliver clarity. You are not a normal normal person. There's something unique. And he knew that. And so when it comes time for this confession, I'm sure Peter has been pondering these things in his heart for quite a long time. And so he's ready with his answer. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Everything that Jesus says in the following verses are all arising out of this question, out of this response. Really, before we get to all that, we have to recognize that this is the core of everything that Jesus has to say about the church. In other words, we recognize right away from this interchange that the church is not a collection of folks who just happen to have some sort of vague sense of spirituality. It's not a collection of people who feel a certain sentiment about Christ or who just simply think that he might be an aid to their life, a help to where they're trying to go. It's not a group of people who gather for a motivational speech on a weekly basis or just enjoy singing together or carrying on old traditions. None of that is really what a church is in the mind of Christ. 
It is essentially an assembly of people who believe from the heart the same things that Peter just confessed. That unlike anything else anyone might think about Jesus, these are people who have a crystal clear affirmation that he is the only deliverer from our sin and he is the deliverer from our sin because he is the son of God. That is to say he is God in human flesh. This is much, much more than just simply some good feeling about Christianity or some good feeling about Christ. The true church is a church that has a clear testimony like this. So this lays the first foundation stone, you might say, of the church that Jesus is building. It's laid on this confession, no other No other competing ideas, no other competing notions, no other vague sense of how salvation is achieved or who uh, Jesus is among all the uh, philosophers of the world. The church is built on the crystal clear conviction and proclamation of the identity of Christ. But there's more you learn about the church as you keep reading in verse 17 because we hear from Jesus that this belief that they have, this crystal clear conviction that they have, it comes to them by God's grace. That's what he tells Peter. When Peter says this, Jesus gives his response in verse 17, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Uh, and the word Barjona just simply means the son of Jonah or the son of John, you might translate it. The word bar in Hebrew is the word for child or, or son. And so he's just simply saying, Peter, you are the the son of of John, and yet you're blessed. Now, this is actually a a profound contrast. I mean, Peter has just declared Jesus to be the son of God. He has all the nature of God. He has the characteristics of God. And here he responds to Peter and says, well, you're the son of John. You have all the characteristics. You have all the identity, you have all the nature of your father, John, which is to say you have all the characteristics and identity and nature of a human being, like every other human being who's fallen, who's flawed, who's full of error and sin, who has all the weakness and is susceptible to destruction and death. You have all of that humanness and all of that's highlighted by calling him the son of John or the son of Jonah. You have all the limitations that every other human being has and yet you are blessed. You're blessed not because of who your father is. You're blessed not because of the heritage that you have or the upbringing that you have or any of those other things. You are blessed not because of flesh and blood because as Jesus says there in verse 17, flesh and blood didn't reveal to you what you just said. Flesh and blood, they're just an idiom for other human beings. Your, your belief, your crystal clarity in, in who I am, your crystal clarity in my salvation didn't come from other human beings. It didn't come from your upbringing. It didn't come from, from your dad or from your mom or from a good home environment. It didn't come from other people, their insights, their particularly persuasive interaction or arguments in your life. It didn't come from your own efforts or your own insights or some natural keen ability that you have to make good judgments about what's true and what's... None of it. It didn't come from any of that stuff. None of that that you might just call natural 
that which is natural to you, flesh and blood. You didn't understand any of these things from anyone, including yourself. Belief doesn't come that way. It doesn't come from your religious tradition or your calculations. It doesn't come from your own nature and personality. It doesn't come from flesh and blood. There's nothing in the human realm that leads to this. It comes, Jesus says, from my Father in heaven. He's the one who revealed it to you. This is the only way that you know it. The only way you know this crystal clear conviction, the only way you know that Jesus is the deliverer and the only way that you know that he is none other than God in human flesh is when God makes it known in your heart, which is what the scripture teaches over and over again. It has all these images about your complete inability to do anything To save yourself or to come to the knowledge of the truth, it it describes you as a dead person, dead people don't raise themselves from the dead, describes you as a blind person, blind people don't, by their own effort, become sighted people. It describes you in all these ways as someone completely incapable, who absolutely needs the work of God to cause the truth to be born in your hearts. And Jesus has already told us this back in Matthew 11. He said, all things have been handed over to me by the Father and no one knows the Son except the Father and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So if you know the Father or if you know the Son, it's because the Son has chosen to make that known to you. Or in another place, in John 6, when all the people were turning away from Jesus after feeding the 5,000, many were turning away, and Jesus explained at that point, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So you can't even come, you can't even approach unless God first does a work in your heart. And so he's telling people, Peter, look, the sole reason you even understand these things that I've just heard coming from your lips. The sole reason that you know this or anyone knows this is because it was revealed to them by my Father. All of your efforts, all of our efforts, all of our eloquent speech and pleading and reasoning and all that other stuff, all that is flesh and blood and all of that will always be inadequate. God sovereignly reveals himself to people. Jesus wants Peter and the apostles to understand this very clearly. It would help them understand a little bit of why perhaps when the miracles that Jesus performed were seen by all the other multitudes of people, why they had a different reaction than Peter and the apostles. Why other people weren't responding because God hadn't revealed these things in their heart. Peter knew it, not because he was more clever, but because God had revealed it in his heart. Now, this truth about this sovereign divine work that God must do in each person's heart is necessary then to understand the third thing that Jesus tells us about the church. He tells us that 
the church he wants brings clarity to who he is. He tells us that the church he's doing believes because of his grace. But notice in verse 18 that this church is also built by his power. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Now, that only makes sense if you, if you understand that he is the one who reveals to people this truth in their hearts. Otherwise, the building of the church is not his work, it's our work. It's us, you know, getting up early and staying up late and blood, sweat, and tears and all the effort and all the labor that we put into it. And we're going to work hard and we're going to build this church and we're going to build this church and we're going to do it all by our cleverness, by our techniques, by our strategies, by all these other things. It's going to be built on flesh and blood. But by Jesus explaining to us that this whole confession that came from Peter's lips, this whole confession that is going to be a part of the church, by him explaining to us that it is his grace that causes this to be born in people's hearts, then it becomes abundantly clear that if the church is going to be built, it must be built by him. And it can be built no other way. It must be built by him. He must be the one who gives people the faith and by that builds the church. Now this would be an incredible source of encouragement for these apostles, especially in the early days when they're founding the church because almost out of the gate, as soon as they start preaching, they're arrested and thrown in jail. And they could sit there and think, wow, this hardly even got started before it ended. But that's not what they think because they know that the church isn't built by their own efforts. In fact, when they are recording, when Luke is recording the early days of the church and he talks about the church growing, he makes it clear. Acts 2.47, the Lord was adding to the church day by day those who were being saved. It was the Lord that was doing it. Acts 13.48, when Gentiles heard the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of God. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So they believed because God had appointed them to eternal life. Or they believed because God had revealed himself in their hearts. Now, This is necessary if you're going to understand God as building His church rather than you building His church. This is, in fact, intuitive to every one of us as a believer. Otherwise, why would you pray to God for the salvation of anyone? If you thought that God wasn't integral, if you thought that God wasn't in control of those who are being saved and those who are being added to the church, if you didn't think that God had really any control over that why even bother to pray for the lost but we do all the time because we 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 fundamentally understand that he is the one who reveals truth in their hearts and he's the one who builds the church and this is his promise to peter i will build my church now he says this to Peter, but I believe this is not just said to Peter alone. Some people have made that claim. In fact, it's 
It's been one of the major controversies in the history of the church. This statement right here, because it was upon this statement that the Roman Catholic Church has constructed its entire concept of the papacy or of the pope. This idea right here, that Jesus was going to build the church on Peter, not just on Peter, but on Peter as the first pope, and then on every successive pope who came after him that that, 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 that mantle was passed down to. And all of it constructed on this notion that this statement was said to Peter singularly and, uh, and that he was given a kind of a crown. That's the way the Catholic Church describes the Pope. It teaches that the Pope has a triple crown. The Pope is, in the words of Catholic doctrine, the King of heaven, the King of earth, and the King of hell. That Jesus crowned him at this moment and every successive pope with those investitures. And, uh, and so to be in a proper relationship with God, you have to be in communion with the pope or, or, or all of Peter's successors. And when the pope speaks ex cathedra, that is to say when he speaks from his throne, he speaks in an official capacity and what he says is infallible. That is to say it's on par with the rest of Scripture. All that stuff has really been built on this fundamental notion that Jesus is telling Peter, I'm going to build the church on you. But is that really what this is all about? I mean, this establishing of of the Pope, the papacy... If it is, it would at least be ironic because down in verse 23, almost as soon as this sort, sort of glorious interchange takes place, Jesus is turning around and calling Peter Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Not a great start to the guy you're going to build the church on. Later on in Matthew 18, the disciples asked Jesus a straightforward question. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And it would seem pretty clear that if he had just established Peter as the first pope, he could answer the question plainly. Well, didn't you guys hear a couple weeks ago? I told you, it's Peter. But he doesn't do that because that's not what he's doing. What he's saying, he's not saying to Peter alone. He's saying to all the disciples. I believe that partly because the question wasn't just to Peter. He asked the question to all of the disciples. The question in verse 15 is plural. Peter just happens to be the one that speaks up first. He answers for the group, and the dialogue is with the group, and the answer, I believe, is for the group. But the reason that people really get hung up is because of the terminology here. The the name Peter uh, is from the Greek word petros, which is the word for rock. You may remember that was not Peter's original name. His, His name at birth was Simon. When he met Jesus, Jesus gave him the name Peter. But, but it wasn't actually Peter because Jesus and uh, Peter would not have been speaking Greek. They would have been speaking the local language in Israel, which would have been Aramaic. And so he would have really given him the name Cephas, which you see, if you read the Bible, you'll see that name several times. It's just simply the Aramaic word for rock. 
So, so this would have been Cephas. And as a matter of fact, when they were speaking here in Caesarea Philippi, they would have been speaking Aramaic. And so he would have said, your name is Cephas. And on this Cephas, which is the word for rock, I'm going to build my church. It would have been exactly the same word. But what's interesting is when you get into Greek, there's a change in the word. I know some of you are like, I came for a sermon, a sermon not a seminary lecture, but I'm going to give you just a little bit of grammar here. In Greek, the, the word for stone has a masculine and a feminine form. The masculine form is Petros, which we translate Peter. The feminine form is the word Petra, and it's the common word for rock. This would have been the word that people would have used in everyday language. And Matthew didn't write in Aramaic. He wrote his gospel in Greek. And so when we have the Greek text come down to us and we translate it in English, what we see are two different words. We see Jesus address Peter as Petros, the masculine form. And on this Petra, the feminine form, I'm going to build my church. Now, a lot of people say, well, Matthew writes it that way. But in the original language, they would have just been using Cephas both times. You're Cephas, and on Cephas, I'll build my church. Matthew, Matthew just does that because it's the conventions of grammar. The word in everyday language is feminine, but, Ma, uh, but, uh, but Peter is a man, so he has the masculine form. And so just as a convention of grammar, when he addresses Peter, he uses the masculine. And when he says, I'm going to build the church on this rock, he goes back to the conventional form, which is feminine. But still, he's referring to Peter. You can't get caught up in the grammar, they would say. But actually, I think it's missing a force for the tree. Because the reality is, both words mean rock. Peter's name means rock in the masculine. And in one case, if Jesus is referring to Peter, he uses the masculine. And in the other case, if Jesus is referring to Peter, he would also use the masculine. In other words, the fact that Matthew changed the gender indicates that at least in Matthew's mind, the second reference to rock is not a reference to Peter. Otherwise, he would have kept it masculine the whole time. He's like, whoa, okay, that's too much. Well, let me just clarify things for you. Jesus is not saying that he's going to build the church on a single person or a single office or a single pope or any of those things. He's declaring that he, uh, Peter has this name, but he's going to build his church on a solid foundation that uh, is similar to Peter's name, but not exactly the same, a rock like Peter. Well, what's the rock? Well, I, I think, you know, again, the grammar gives us some um, insight here because uh, Jesus himself uh, is uh, masculine, and so he's probably not referring to himself by a feminine pronoun. Some people say, well, maybe he's referring to the confession that Peter said. You know, you're, you're the Christ, the son of the living. Maybe that's the rock, but that doesn't necessarily uh, work well with the grammar either. I, fa- I think, in fact, the, uh, the Bible goes on to give us the answer. Later on in the, in the text of Ephes- uh, Ephesians, Paul 
is uh, writing, and he talks about the church being built on a foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. I think the rock is not just Peter himself, but it's the entire group of people. In fact, I think that's even accentuated by the fact that in just a few verses, Jesus is going to entrust keys. And the keys that are entrusted are going to be entrusted not just to Peter, but entrusted to all the apostles, as we'll see in just a moment. So for all those reasons, I think that the, the, the rock he's going to build on is the rock of these apostles. They're going to be the ones who are going to establish the doctrine. They're going to be the ones who are going to clarify the gospel. They're going to be the ones who are going to plant churches. They're going to be the ones who are going to do all that. The, don't get, really get lost in the whole discussion of who the rock is. The central issue in all this is that Jesus is the builder. That's the main point. He, not a man, not a pope, not some uh, uh, institution and not some office, not a single disciple, not any of that stuff. He is the builder. He's going to be the one who's going to build this church. And that's important to understand because of the promise that Jesus makes at the end of the verse, the gates of hell, or you could translate it, the gates of Hades shall not overpower it, shall not overcome it. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it, the ESV says. Now, when you read that, you you may imagine he's talking about hellish forces, maybe demonic forces that are going to attack the church. And some people have tried to suggest that that's what he's talking about here, that this is a church under attack by demons and he's not going to let demons overcome the church. But I don't think this is demons, nor do I even think it's an attack. I mean, who attacks you with a gate? I mean, can you imagine that? The guy up on the wall say, the enemy's coming and, and they have gates. I mean, who's going to run at that, right? Swords, maybe, bows and arrows. A gate is not an, a weapon that you attack somebody with. What's a gate? A gate is something you lock people up in. You hold them captive. And what Jesus is saying here is that the gates of Hades, which without getting into too much discussion, is just a simple reference to death. The captivity of death is not going to prevail. I'm going to build my church and death is not going to overcome it. You're not going to be able to stamp out this church. You're not going to be able to kill this church. You're not going to be able to kill the people in the church. Or you might temporarily chop off their head and burn their bodies and scatter their ashes, but they're still going to be alive because by God's power, he's going to raise them from the dead. So you're not going to thwart this church. You're not going to overcome this church. I'm going to build my church. I'm going to bring in the people that I'm revealing the truth to and they are going to prevail and they're going to triumph and they're going to stand because I'm the one that's building it and even death is not going to defeat them is what he's saying. So we're going to triumph and you're never going to be locked away. You're never going to be held captive. You're never going to be behind the bars, if you will, of condemnation and death and defeat. Now, that image, I think, is helpful to prepare us to understand verse 19, where he gives his final remarkable feature of the church he's going to build, because he tells us that this church bears his authority. It carries his authority wherever it goes. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. 
And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, the person with the keys is obviously the person who has the power to unlock the door, which is the very image. They have the power to unlock the gate, we might say. The very image he had just been using. He's saying that I'm giving you the means by which to release people from all of this condemnation and all this captivity that they're in. Now, the Catholic Church, again, has tried to take this as a justification for their notion that the Pope has unique and sole authority on earth to personally absolve people from their sins or to personally condemn them. If you ever see the seal of the of the papacy and the Vatican, what is it? It's two keys crossed with each other. So that they, they think that, that these keys have not been handed to the church in general. These keys have been handed to Peter. He's the sole one. And if you want to have your sins absolved, you must go through the Pope or through one of his emissaries, the priest. That's why you go into a confessional booth and sit across the way and tell your sins to a priest so that he can absolve you of your sins or give you certain things to do to be absolved. All that stuff is done through the delegated authority of the Pope who has this power on earth to forgive sins. But all that misunderstands what Jesus is saying here. He's not suggesting that we have some sort of authority for the forgiveness of sins. I think to understand this a little bit better, it may be helpful to hear Jesus using this image in another context. Over in Luke chapter 11, Jesus was talking to a different group of spiritual leaders. He was talking to the lawyers along with the scribes in Israel of the day, they were the ones who carried out the message, or I should say, uh, who, who, who proclaimed the, the message of the Old Testament scriptures. And Jesus pronounces a woe or a curse against these religious leaders. He says, woe to you, lawyers, for you've taken away the key. You've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. He's talking about salvation here. He's saying you have this key, this key of knowledge, which allows people to enter into God's salvation, enter into uh, His kingdom. You have this key, but by your approach to the Scripture, your twisting of the Scripture, your your hiding of the scripture, you're obscuring of it, you make it impossible for people to understand the clear doctrine of how to be saved. So the key is a kind of a stewardship. And he talks about them being given this key and taking away the key of knowledge from people, binding them or loosing them in that sense. I think it's in the same way Jesus is telling Peter that he's been given the keys to the kingdom and along with him all the apostles, very similar to what Jesus tells the disciples at the end of John. Uh, He says that if they forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if they withhold forgiveness from any, they are withheld. None of that is talking about personal authority. It's talking about responsibility. You've been given a very precious responsibility. You carry the key. 
Just like the Pharisees carried the key, just like the lawyers and the scribes carried the key. And all these people around you are locked. They're locked behind their gate. They're locked behind their jail cell. And you've got the key, and it's now your job to go and to proclaim the gospel, the way of salvation, the key for them to have escape and, 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 and to have forgiveness, the key for them to have entrance into God's kingdom and into his heaven, into his salvation. You have the key. I've been given, I'm giving to you this, this unique responsibility to take the message of salvation, which is in, found in Christ alone. There is no other key. There is no other message. There is no other pathway. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by him. But that message and that exclusive sort of, uh, of uh, uh, pathway of freedom has been entrusted to the church. He doesn't give it to the philosophers. He doesn't give it to the educators. He doesn't give it to the politicians. He doesn't give it to any other force, any other institution, any other organization, anybody else. There's only one key. And he gave it to the church. And now he's telling us it's our job to go out there and to loose people from their chains or from their from their gates or bars, their jail cells. So these are the keys, this very unique authoritative message that is exclusive to the church. No other keys, no other pathways of salvation, no other religions, no other gods, no other source. The key's been entrusted to the church. And we're in the process of seeking to loose those who are bound. This kind of authority doesn't, doesn't abide in us. It doesn't abide in any office. It's given to us. It comes from God and entrusted to us. And we bear it. We carry it. It's His. But as a true church, we're supposed to declare what is acceptable to God what he is seeking. We don't invent a new message. We don't make a new key. We don't come up with a new gospel. We don't establish a new way of salvation. It is the same. So I don't know what you hear about the church. I don't know what you think about the church, but this is what Jesus thinks about the church. The church has just a couple of basic things. It needs to clarify who Christ is. It needs to understand that its belief doesn't come from its own flesh and blood. It comes from God's divine sovereignty. And in light of that, it needs to understand that God is the one building the church. And because he's the one building the church, we can with boldness and confidence take the message that he's given to us offering it to every person who comes across our path, this is the way of escape. This is the way out of your prison. You let Christ into your heart. You cry out to him and he will free you.
He'll free you not only from death one day, He'll free you right now from your guilt and from your condemnation, from your sin. He will free you because He has the path of life. If you're here this morning and you don't know this Christ, you've known Christ, He's just one of those people that you've heard of. You had some ideas, just like everyone has ideas. You're here this morning. We're telling you on the authority of God. He is the Son of God. And He is the Messiah, the Deliverer, who has come to set you free. Father, we're grateful for the clarity of the gospel that has been given to us, the simplicity of it. And as a church, we want to be the church that you establish, the church doing what you've called us to do. I pray that you would help this church, this local church, Faith Community Church, to be just that. And in light of that, Lord, we place our trust in you, that you would build your church. And I pray for those who are here today who are attending. They're gathering together with us, but they are not a true part of the church because you haven't done a work in their hearts. I pray, Lord, set them free. Loose their bonds. Open the gate. May they be, a, may they be delivered from their sins so that one day you will deliver them from death. Lord, we know, we'll do that. You know, we know you'll do that because you are the one with the power and the might and the authority to do all of that as the Son of God. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.